We have been uh, in the midst of a bit of a series uh, where we were talking about what we've been talking about, um, Jesus' way, contemplative way, second half of life journey, and that there are three books that outline this journey from Genesis to Job to Ecclesiastes that, that I've been trying to build that story arc. Um, but I'm going to have to leave you hanging for one week because I wanted to talk about, uh, we just had Thanksgiving, and so I wanted to weave in the holiday of Thanksgiving into also this journey that we're talking about. So this is kind of a sidebar. You know, we're not actually leaving the theme, but we're leaving the main story arc. So it's like one of those episodes, you know, X-Files or whatever, where you have the main story arc and then they have the little episodes. This is a little episode within the main story arc. And I can see that that just didn't connect at all. But that's okay. We just had Thanksgiving. The thing that I really appreciate about Thanksgiving is that it's relatively pure. It's been really difficult for marketers to commercialize Thanksgiving. Have you noticed that? It, you know, it doesn't have what Halloween certainly has and Christmas has and you know, Valentine's Day. It's been harder for them to get the hooks in and actually commercialize it. And so it's stayed more or less kind of a pure time of connection for families and, and a time of obviously giving thanks for everything that we have. And I've appreciated that about, uh, about, giving, about Thanksgiving, even though, yeah, the next day is Black Friday and the next Monday is Cyber Monday. And so they've, they've kind of camped around it. But at least Thanksgiving itself still is there with something to teach us. And that's what I wanted to explore this morning. We've been talking about the four S's um, for, for years now as the building blocks to, to Jesus' way, the building blocks to the contemplative way. And of course, that silence, solitude, stillness, and simplicity. And the older I get, the simpler things look. It's really uncanny the way this has been working out. The older I get, the simpler things look. And in fact, the simpler things look to me is one way that I know that I'm on a good track that I'm staying on a good track, that things are appearing more and more simple, less of the complexity that has plagued me my entire life, right? In fact, the things that remain complicated in my life right now, I realize are those things that are less important in the overall scheme of things. They're still first half of life issues. And if they are remaining complicated to me, then it's because I'm hanging on to them and making them too important in my life. We've been talking about this, that we start in simplicity in the garden and we move to the complexity of our adult life. But if we're really following the trajectory that Jesus is laying out for us, then we fall back into the simplicity of the elder. And that's where we want to end up. The beautiful thing is that the simplicity of the elder does contain the complexity of the adult. The second half of life contains the first half of life issues and everything that we still must do as long as we're breathing here. But it retains that second sight or it layers on that second sight where we can see through the complexity to the simplicity under the, underneath. And we never forget what the important task really is, that task within the task. And we don't lose sight of that anymore, even as we tend to whatever it is that we need to be tending to. Now, Jesus is the master of simplicity. When he was asked about the greatest commandment, right, what did he say? Love God. Love each other. 
That's basically it. Love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was it. Everything else was commentary. At the Last Supper, as he's getting ready to leave his followers, he says, I have a new commandment for you. Love each other as I have loved you. That's it. Everybody's going to know you're my follower by the love that you have for each other. That's it. Everything else is commentary. He said, seek first the kingdom and all else will be added. One thing. You just, you had one job to do, right? One thing. All else will be added. Everything else is commentary. Simplicity. He brings it right down in a sea of complexity, especially that the Pharisees were teaching the people all the rules, so complex that no one could figure it out. That's why they needed them as their lawyers to be able to tell them what was right and what was wrong, what they could and couldn't do. Here's Jesus cutting through all of that with one thing over and over and over again. So now for us here, we need a way to understand just how simple Jesus' kingdom is. We need a way to understand just how simple the second half of life journey really is. Just how simple this only way to the Father really is. We imagine all sorts of things about our spiritual lives and about our religious lives especially. We imagine that it's got to include laws and rules, theology, doctrine, rituals, prayers, good works, all those sorts of things. And we have to imagine, we have to experience it in order to understand that it is not about those things. When we seek the one thing that Jesus is talking about, all those others become included. They become added in. But they are not it. The complexity is not it. We have to experience the difference. There's no substitute for experiencing the difference. That's what the contemplative way is all about. It's actually experiencing rather than just thinking about something. But what is it that we're actually experiencing when we experience the simplicity of Jesus' way? Now, I think it may come down to just one word, one sensation, one experience, if you will. Well, the problem is if I just tell you the word, if I just tell you the concept, you know, you're probably just going to shrug. I don't know. You might roll your eyes. You might yawn. You'll think you've heard it all before. I heard it a million times. It's just a cliche. And I want to see if this morning I can bring home the impact of this one word, this simplicity that Jesus is trying to get across. And so I thought before we look at the word, the target here, maybe we can look at its opposite. Or even better yet, maybe we can look at the effect of its opposite on us. Now we've been talking and using Marion, I've been using Marion as a sermon illustration over and over and over again, because she's been working at, uh, at a grocery store and checkout and just having a time with all these customers that are coming through that are so difficult. They're difficult, they're, they're, they're angry, they're, they're demanding, they're uncouth, they're rude. And it's just been kind of shocking to me that people actually act like that in public. You know? And it's been hard for Marion, eight hours at a stretch, to keep having this parade going through. But it's not just the grocery store, it's everywhere. People are angrier today, don't you think? 
than they were even before the pandemic, than they were a decade or two ago, than they were when we were kids. It just seems like there's so much anger that's right out on our sleeve. And you just, you know, you don't have newspapers anymore, but crack the newspaper digitally, however you do it. Read the stories that are going on. Read about the mass shootings. Read about the, the rhetoric and the way that people talk to each other. Go on your social media. See it there. People are angrier. What's going on? Why is this happening? I have a couple of articles here that I just want to read some bits from to see if we can figure it out. What is it that's making people so angry these days? And these two articles are interesting because the first one's going to deal with it at the macro level, right? Top level. And the second one's going to deal with it at the micro level, at the personal level. So this first one, which was written by a rabbi, he writes, Americans are angry. They are angry about school shootings and taxes and mistreatment and undeserved privilege and discrimination in government. There are differences between groups. But as a recent Esquire NBC survey finds, the overall presence of rage is clear. The November survey of more than 3,000 American adults found that about half are angrier today than they were a year ago. Why are Americans so angry? All of us, of whatever group, live some version of the Whig interpretation of history. It's a theory identified and criticized by an historian almost a century ago. But here's what it does. It sees history as an ever-increasing march to enlightenment. So you get that? Here is this, this uh, interpretation of history that humankind is on this march, ever-increasing march, to enlightenment, to a higher consciousness. Now, if you believe that things should get better and better, then it's infuriating when they do not. So what is the first thing that we're learning about why people are getting angry? The first one is expectation. Our expectations are not in line with what is happening around us. Remember we talked about the tragic gap a few weeks ago? It's the gap between the way things are and the way you think they should be. We're all in that tragic gap. The problem with expectation is when your expectation and your experience are not the same, that's all the space you need to be really miserable and really angry. A good moment is when expectation and experience are exactly the same, right? That's not what's happening right now. And if you believe that things are supposed to get better, if you believe that mankind is supposed to keep rising, you know, age of Aquarius and all of that, and then you look at your, your cell phone, read the news feed, you realize something is really wrong here. So he says it's infuriating when things are not getting better. In many ways, modern life is indeed better than it has ever been in the past. Report after report reaffirm, reaffirms this improvement, improvement. But the improvement in world health may not mean that much to me if my own health care is less comprehensive than it was 10 years ago. Because we know so much more about disease, we are relentless in our discussion of wellness and diet and the pursuit of longevity. We have instant access to every catastrophe in the world, so we obsess over creating perfect security. So now we've come to the second reason that we're angry, and that's insecurity. We look around and we see all this craziness. We look around and we see our 401k dropping because the stock market is dropping. We see everything going in a direction that looks scary to us, and that insecurity also makes us angry. Extravagant lifestyles are paraded through our living rooms each night. So it becomes difficult to be satisfied with our own ample, 
but still comparatively modest means. So what's the third reason for anger? It's envy. We see what the haves have, and even if we're not exactly a have-not, we still think it's somehow wrong that they've got what we don't. Envy is also making us angry. Much of our frustration arises in an age when atrocities and injustice are constantly paraded before our eyes as well. And so a fourth is victimization. We feel victimized by what's going on. All the injustice that we see around us over and over and over again, even if it's just on our phones. Particularly galling is our understanding of unfairness from childhood. The sense that someone has received more than we have arouses anger. This is a danger whenever goods are unevenly distributed as they are in every society that has ever existed. In modern capitalist economies, the resentment is exacerbated by vast wealth and everyone's easy glimpses into the worlds of the haves. And so now we're getting into a fifth reason, and that's entitlement. We feel that we're entitled to the things that we don't have. Expectation, insecurity, envy, victimization, and entitlement are all driving the anger that we're seeing in our society. Now, anger is a kind of a blanket response some, some uh, counselors talk about it as a top-level emotion. It's always driven by something else underneath. And anger is a way for us to discharge pain, just as blame is a way to discharge anger. And so we get into this cycle where these underlying issues, whether it's victimization or envy or entitlement, are driving the anger, which drives the blame, and then we're back into the cycle again. But we're trying to discharge these feelings of expectation, insecurity, envy, entitlement, and victimization. So that's taking a look at it at the macro level. Let's dive into the personal level and see what the second writer has to say. He says, have you seen it happening around you recently? You misjudge a right turn into traffic and force the person behind you to slow down. In the rearview mirror, you see him screaming and aggressively showing you his favorite finger. Now, it was your fault, but it didn't need to cause the person to melt down. You attend your kid's soccer game. One of the kids isn't starting the game. The parent loses her mind at the coach. You open up your email or Facebook, and you simply can't believe the things that people are writing. People are getting angrier. Why? Why are strangers treating each other like arch enemies? Why is politics feeling more like trash talk before a professional wrestling smackdown? Why at home are we yelling at each other? It would be nice to have a scapegoat. When we face uncomfortable emotion, our first reaction is to disassociate from it. We don't want its heat to touch us. We don't want it to be the cause. We don't want to be the cause. The challenge, unfortunately, is that our tendency toward quick and more vigorous anger is the result of three cultural realities that aren't going to change unless we change. And the three realities that he sees are smartphones, <laughs> the pace of life, and evolution. All right, I'm going to need some explaining on that one, right? Your smartphone is the greatest and most dangerous tool you will ever use. It gives you access to the entire universe through the internet. It connects you to everyone you have ever known through social media. And every time you connect, you get a dopamine hit. All right, you all know about dopamine, right? 
that neurochemical that makes you feel good. So we have this love-hate relationship with our smartphones, don't we? It has a real pull on us. And you are probably aware of and watching people becoming addicted to this cell phone, constantly on it. We see it in restaurants. We see it around us all over. Why is this happening? One of the reasons, of course, is social media. When we post something, when we share something, when we like something, when we comment on something, when we send an invite to something, we create an ex expectation of reward for ourselves. Putting this stuff out there creates an expectation of reward. And the dopamine kicks in because we have this hope, this promise of belonging somehow, an increased concept of ourselves somehow because we're putting this thing out there. And then when it gets returned to us, either in likes or shares or retweets or comments, it's like a physical hug. We actually get that dopamine hit. It's like a smile or a compliment or some kind of a word that we would get when that happens. And it creates a sort of Pavlovian response. You get a rush from just the alert that you hear on your cell phone when it's in your pocket, right? When the buzzing of the phone hits, you're getting that, 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 that already. It's starting, right? Then we have to pick up. We have to check and see what's going on. And this creates another feedback loop that starts with the sharing and then comes around the way around to a Pavlovian response and then again. And even when we're sharing, let's say, a rewarding activity, it's rewarding on its own. You know, we share a, a dinner date that we're having or we're sharing an anniversary that we're having. Or what I'm seeing more and more is people are sharing their workouts, you know, they're showing themselves lifting weights or doing whatever they do. Whatever it is that is a rewarding activity on its own and gives you that first dopamine hit, right? Then you share it and you get a second dopamine hit. And then if somebody responds to you, you get another one. And it just reinforces over and over the behavior that we're going through. Now, this is not, you know, unnoticed by marketers, believe me. These marketers online are devising strategies to maximize the dopamine hits that we get so that we will continue with this activity. They're kind of like drug pushers, except the drugs are in your own brains. It's really interesting. And so these cell phones the, and this social media and everything that we've been talking about is hitting us in the dopamine, right? Caffeine gives you a dopamine hit. Cocaine does too. Ever seen someone after a cocaine binge? Not pretty. And that's most of us these days, almost all the time. We want more connection, immediate gratification and validation. And when we don't get it, the alarm in our brain fires. It wants the good feeling back. It thinks something is wrong. It then short circuits the thinking part of our brain, and then we get angry. The problem is we've been running around all day, working longer hours than ever before, carting our kids to three soccer games and a birthday party each weekend day while trying to keep up the house, stay close to our family and friends, fulfill our volunteer commitments, and occasionally we try to do something for ourselves. All that busyness means less sleep, less exercise, less slow, leisurely meals, and more stress. Doing too much, too much causes stress because it forces the alarm in our brain to stay on all the time. The alarm looks out for danger, but it can't calm down unless it knows you're safe. Running around all the time, you're not safe. It doesn't want you to miss anything important, and as a result, you are tired from paying attention all the time. 
you miss something little and you pop. Now, our brains can't tell the difference between what really should stress us out and little things that really shouldn't because we haven't had time as a species to evolve enough to keep up with the modern world. This has all happened in 20 years, hasn't it? We don't evolve that fast. Our brains haven't had the time to catch up with this kind of information overload and the way that we are using. Eventually, maybe it will. And we'll be able to settle into this kind of technology. Our kids will be born with little flipper fingers that just do what needs to happen on the phones. I don't know. But we haven't evolved to that point. We are the, we are the rats in the maze. We are the guinea pigs who are being experimented upon in this great social experiment and technological experiment. So technology, especially in the form of smartphones, because they're portable, provide a constant 24-7 flood of information and feedback loops that foster the expectation, insecurity, envy, victimization, entitlement that manifest as anger and provides a platform or a pulpit to project that anger over an entire planet. Now, I, want, I don't want to tell you that social media is wrong or that cell phones are wrong. I mean, they're, they're amazing instruments. I use them all the time. But what we need to do is to be aware enough to realize that when the tail has started wagging the dog, right, when now we become addicted and we are part of this loop unconsciously, just on and on and on, if we can continue to use smartphones and social media and the internet as the tool that it is, the amazing tool that it is, and it's great to be able to stay close to people electronically that we can't stay close to physically, but not let it be a substitute for physical connection, then we can start to balance. But we're all out of balance. And that's being shown to us over and over again in our society. You know, life moves so fast right now. Our brains haven't evolved enough to distinguish what really is a flight or fight situation, a fight or flight threat. And so it keeps us on high alert all the time. So what's the antidote? How can we get out of this feedback loop? Well, one of my favorite uh, thinkers and writers is Dennis Prager. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's, he's a, a Jewish writer and, and uh, had radio stations, a radio personality. He wrote a piece. And I think he puts his finger right on it, how we can get through and out of this loop. He writes, how many times have you heard someone say that they want to make a better world? It's a noble sentiment, but very hard to achieve, right? Well, actually, it's quite easy. All we have to do is increase just one human trait. Here we are back to simplicity again. This trait is so powerful that it alone can make people happier without working on their happiness. It can make people happier without working on their happiness and make them better. And by better, I mean more generous, more honest, more kind, more everything good without a single lesson in morality. So then, what is this one almost magical thing? Drum roll, please. <laughs> it's gratitude. Okay, so are you feeling a little let down now when we finally get to the one word, you know? Hope I didn't set you up for this huge dopamine hit and then you didn't get it, you know, when we come back to gratitude, you know? Because we hear about gratitude so much, it's become a cliche. But that doesn't mean that it is not the one thing 
the core of the simplicity of Jesus' message at the same time. We need to look deeper to see what it means. Prager continues, you can't be a happy person if you aren't grateful, and you can't be a good person if you aren't grateful. Now, when he says a good person, I would think decent would be a better descriptor there because good gets into all sorts of of, uh, standards and values we have. But just common decency. Are you a golden rule ethic type of person? Are you at least going to treat people the way you want to be treated? That's decency. You can't be a decent person if you aren't grateful. Almost everything good flows from gratitude and almost everything bad flows from ingratitude. Let's begin with ingratitude. So he's going to start with the opposite as well to try to get across why gratitude is so important. Here's a rule of life. Ingratitude guarantees unhappiness. It's as simple as that. There isn't an ungrateful, happy person on earth. And there isn't an ungrateful, good, or decent person on earth. There are two reasons. Reason one is victimhood. Back to victimhood. Ingratitude always leads to or comes from victimhood. Ungrateful people, by definition, think of themselves as victims, right? They didn't get what they expected. They didn't get what they're entitled to. But they did get envy, right? They did get a sense of insecurity and all those other things we're talking about. And perceiving oneself as a victim or perceiving oneself as a member of a victim group may be the single biggest reason people hurt other people. From hurtful comments to mass murder. People who think of themselves as victims tend to believe that because they've been hurt by others, they can hurt others. And the second reason ungrateful people aren't good and decent people is that ingratitude is always accompanied by anger. The ungrateful are angry, and angry people lash out at others. If ingratitude makes people unhappy and mean, then gratitude must make people happy and kind. And so it does. Think of the times you have felt most grateful. Were they not always accompanied by a feeling of happiness? Weren't they also accompanied by a desire to be kinder to other people? The answer, of course, is yes. Think about it in your own life. Is the answer yes for you? The times when you felt most grateful for whatever reason, is that the time that you would be most kind? Is that the time when your anger is most at bay? Verify it in your own life. Grateful people aren't angry, and they also don't see themselves as victims The problem, however, and it's a big one, is that in America and much of the rest of the world, people are becoming less grateful. Why? Because people are constantly told that they are entitled to things that they haven't earned, what are known as benefits or entitlements. And the more things that people think they should get, the less grateful they will be for whatever they do get. And the more angry and therefore unhappy they will be when they don't get them. Here are two more rules of life. Rule number one, the less you feel entitled to, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get, and the happier you will be. Rule number two, the more you feel entitled to, the less happy you will be. I think he's nailing it here. Gratitude. You've heard it a thousand times to be thankful, to count your blessings. Now, I'll tell you what, when someone tells me to count my blessings, what I'm really counting are the ways I could hurt them. 
It's like telling a depressed person to snap out of it. Please. You know, it doesn't work that way. Gratitude is much more than just thankfulness. We can't just count our blessings and, and think we're going to move somehow into gratitude. Mere thankfulness is not the gratitude of which we're speaking here. It begins with thankfulness, but then it journeys on to an actual attitude for life, a way of seeing life, a way of seeing how we interface with others, the relationship we have with others, and especially with God, that keeps us in this attitude, this worldview of gratitude. So how do we take this journey? And how does this affect the anger that we're talking about? How do we realize kingdom as Jesus is talking about it? And I think we need to just read a little bit of Jesus here to see if he really does address all these issues we're talking about. So starting at Matthew 11, verse 2, and this is in your handouts, or I know Brandon will get it up on the board. In terms of expectation, Matthew 11, now when John, he's talking about John the Baptist, was imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? This is John the Baptist talking. He's the one who said, I must decrease as he increases. He's the one who said that, this one, I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now from prison, he's asking, are you the expected one, or we, should we wait for somebody else? Now understand that expected one is the exact title of the Messiah that the Essenes used, which was one of the four major groups of Israel. Those are the guys who built Qumran that later produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And most likely, John was an Essene. Everything about him fits the group and fits the mindset. And here he's using the exact title they used. Are you the expected one? Are you the Mashiach? Or should we, should we be waiting for someone else? Because I don't see you gathering the power that you're going to need to toss the Romans out. I don't see you doing the things that are needing to be done in order to really change Israel back into a sovereign nation, the light on the hill to all the Gentile world. What's going on here? What does Jesus say? He answers and says, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is he telling John? He's reminding John that he got pulled off into a macro expectation. He got pulled off into a political expectation that Jesus was not going to fulfill. He's trying to remind him. He's quoting right here from Isaiah. That would not have been missed by John, believe me. What he's telling him is, look around, John. Look around and see what's happening. See the healing that's going on. See what's happening with people from the inside out, those who are most marginalized. It's all here now. It's all happening right here. If you will look and see then the question is going to answer itself. You don't need to ask me. Grace is happening everywhere. Unmerited favor. The gifts that we could never give ourselves, that we can't earn, are being poured out right now. It's only your arbitrary expectation overlaid on your moments that holds the joy and the gratitude at bay. That's it. It's all right here. It's all now. It's your expectation that is shelving you from it. 
than asking questions you shouldn't have to ask. At John 14, starting in verse 8, Jesus is going to deal with insecurity. This is where Thomas and Philip, one by one, Thomas, is a- Thomas asks him to show him the way, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Sort of the same sentiment he probably had for John, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's insecurity that caused Thomas to ask to be shown the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. It was insecurity that Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus said, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. And their insecurity was understandable. Jesus just told them he's leaving them. He was everything to their world. But I am the way, he said. I am the Father. You know me. You've had this time with me. Once you realize who you're walking with and have been walking with, once you realize who and what you're walking on, then how can you lose? How can you be lost when you have that in your back pocket? How can you be ungrateful, insecure, fearful, when you finally realize what it is that you have right here and right now? Insecurity. At Luke 15, of course, the famous prodigal son, starting at verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him and said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. This is the father speaking back to, the, to him, the oldest son. You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours, but we have had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Of course, we're talking about envy here. What part of everything don't we understand is what it comes down to. The Father basically is saying, everything I have is already yours. Everything I have was yours from the very beginning of time and certainly from the beginning of your birth. By definition here, envy is absolutely absurd. It's nonsensical. There's nothing left to envy if we already have everything that is. We've got it all. What is it that we could possibly envy at this point? And not only that, but everything we have was freely given. We didn't earn it. All we can do is be grateful for it. Even the elder brother, if you think about it, all the work that he says he did, all the commands that he says he obeyed, all he was really doing is rearranging furniture in his father's house. His father gave him everything within which to work the response still is gratitude. 
envy. It doesn't make any sense according to Jesus when it comes to these spiritual issues. And on to entitlement at Luke 7, starting at verse 36, or verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, okay, this is Jesus who was invited to Simon the Pharisee, comes to dinner at his house. And when he saw Jesus, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. So as he's reclining at table, Mary comes in, anoints his feet, weeps over his feet, dries with his hair. And of course, everybody is scandalized because they know that she's the greatest sinner in town. And to be touched by her would make one ritually unclean according to the complex rules of the Pharisees. So he's watching all this happen. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. But what Jesus is really saying here, just like when everybody comes to the job at different times and gets paid the same at the end of the day, everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have has been freely given. Everything we have is a forgiven debt. It's like hitting the jackpot of the lottery. You know, it just came to us, right? And to realize that nothing of lasting value is ever earned, but is only freely received, takes us into a place of vulnerable dependence to a place where we understand that everything flows to us. We're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That's all we can really do. We don't create these things. They are given to us. And when we can realize that, then we can move into a place where we're not worried anymore, a place where we really can be grateful, even as we continue to work hard, even as we continue to plan for the future. But understanding that this life is this throughput, this movement of spirit through our lives and through the lives of our family, we can be a part of that flow in a way that we can't if we're trying to carve everything out inch by inch and dollar by dollar, day by day. Jesus is always pointing in this direction. John 5, last one. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. This is Jesus going to the Bethsaida pool. And there's a man who's been there for 38 years who has been paralyzed and can't walk. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now there's a question, right? Now what answer would you <laughs> think that he would respond with? Well, yeah. No. Now, there was, a, there was a tradition at this pool that when the waters got stirred up, 
that it was angels that were stirring up the water. And the first one into the pool, once the waters got stirred up, would be the one who was healed. And so you had to be on the ready. As soon as you saw whatever it was that was making the whirlpool, you had to jump in and be the first one into the pool. So when Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well? A no-brainer question, right? The sick man answers him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now here's a guy who's in a pretty pitiful condition. And it's not because of his physical infirmity. It's because of his mindset. He's a victim. He has no choice. And he also has no community. He has no friend. Remember the friends who cut a hole in the roof to lay, lower down their friend to get to Jesus who was paralyzed in another story? This is a guy with resources. This guy has none. He doesn't even have a friend who can help get him into the water. Furthermore, he can't even say, yes, I want to get well. He has to come up with an excuse because he sees himself as a victim. Maybe he's even comfortable with his paralysis because he doesn't have any responsibility for his life and people take care of him. Who knows what's going on in the man's mind? But Jesus says, you can make a choice. Pick up your pallet and walk. You see, a victim has no choice. That's what defines a victim. Not that they've been hurt. Lots of us have been hurt. Everyone's been hurt. But not all of us are victims. We've all been victimized. Things happened without our choice in the matter. But in the next breath, we have a choice. How are we going to react to it? A victim has no choice. The man sees himself in this way, that he has no choice but to continue to lie there. And Jesus says, we are not victims. We're hurt, but we have choice. Pick up your pallet and walk. Choose to do something. Don't pretend you're paralyzed. Allow yourself to begin to move. Walk. And find a reason to be grateful. Again, always pointing in this direction. Jesus is trying to get these things across to us. That we can overcome the debility of our expectation with the awareness, with the presence that helps us to see what's really going on right now in this moment. We can overcome an insecurity with intimacy, with connection. We can overcome envy with the realization of the spiritual abundance that we are heir to, that has been given us from the very beginning. That we can overcome entitlement with a dependence, with an understanding of our vulnerable condition. To make friends with that dependence in the anavim sense, where now we rely on God entirely, even as we work hard. And we can overcome victimization with choice, with action, and especially with connection to community. All of these things that Jesus is talking about, right? Awareness, presence, intimacy, realization of spiritual abundance, dependence, vulnerability, choice, and action, they all create the same sensation in us, the same feeling in us. When we live in awareness and intimacy and vulnerability and dependence and all of that, what does it feel like? It feels like gratitude. That's what it feels like. And gratitude feels like happiness, like fulfillment, like meaning, like purpose. Gratitude is an umbrella term that covers and includes all the positive emotions that we feel as human beings, and it excludes all the rest. I want you to really think about this. 
You can't be grateful and depressed at the same time. You know that? You can't listen to James Taylor and be depressed at the same time. I'm convinced of that. I can't tell you how many bad moments a JT song got me through. You know, I'm grateful for JT. I couldn't listen and be depressed at the same time. You can't be grateful and angry at the same time, stressed at the same time, anxious, envious, entitled, or victimized. It's an impossibility, literally impossible. Gratitude is what kingdom feels like. It's the default position of kingdom, if you will. And if we're not feeling grateful, then we're not in kingdom. You could basically paraphrase Jesus and say, seek first gratitude and all else is added. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness and all is added. But when you're doing that, you can't help but be grateful. Now there's a catch. There's always a catch. We can't create gratitude. We can't will it and we can't grunt it out. We can't seek it directly any more than we can seek happiness directly. And we certainly can't count our blessings into it. That's not going to work. Gratitude is what happens when we let go of everything that is not freely given. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? When we let go of all of that stuff, what flows in, we call gratitude. When we let go of all the complexity, all the calculations, all the plans on the worry, when we can accept the moment just as it is and let it be enough for us, that's when gratitude flows in. We were born grateful. Take a look at a small child running around the house. They never walk, right? They're always running around the house, pointing fingers, laughing, everything. We were born grateful. That was us. Maybe we can't even remember it anymore, but that was us too. We were born grateful, and then we grew out of it. But we can fall back into love. We can fall back into gratitude. One last thing I want to read to you, and this directly has to do with Thanksgiving. Because I don't know if you know, but Abraham Lincoln is the one who instituted Thanksgiving for us as a nation. And when you listen to the language of this short proclamation, that's what I love about Lincoln. Everything he wrote was short. And so to the point. I mean, he could pack more in a paragraph than anybody living, I think. But when you listen to his language and you listen to his thoughts, listen to the points he makes, see if this can maybe bring it home again. This is the proclamation of Thanksgiving, Washington, D.C., October 3rd, 1863. So this is just, what, a year and a half before his death and midway through the Civil War by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, 
which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained. The laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well as iron and coal of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. See what he's doing? Even in the midst of this civil war, even in the midst of this horrible time, of which he is at the helm, He continues to see blessings. He continues to see a reason for gratitude, even in all that is happening. He continues, population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield. And the country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who has remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. He continues to see God as the source of everything that is good. And he continues to see us as dependent recipients of that God. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also, with humble penitence for our national perverseness, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently employ the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Wouldn't you love to hear our leaders speak this way again? In testimony whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln. Now, it is beyond ironic, this proclamation, in two ways. First, that this Thanksgiving Day was born during the Civil War, the darkest time in U.S. history. 
And secondly, that this Thanksgiving was born of Abraham Lincoln. Someone we know now was clinically depressed most of his life. Suicidal, melancholy, who had suffered so much in his life. Beyond ironic, it came out of those circumstances. Now, to be sure, Lincoln didn't feel grateful all the time. Of course not. He had his days, his black days. Some of those are recorded in history, like everyone else of us. And we won't feel grateful all the time either. But Lincoln practiced the awareness, the intimacy, the realization of abundance, the dependence of vulnerability, and the choice of action and connection. And gratitude happened in his life. And he affixed it here. In the second half of life, it gets very simple. We're either grateful or we're not. It really comes down to that. And though we won't be grateful all the time, the more we practice all the things that create gratitude in our lives, the more gratitude becomes us. The more we become gratitude, the more we become grateful, the more we become kingdom, the more we become second half. And it doesn't matter if we're not feeling this all the time. 51%, okay? That's all we got to hit. 51%, more often than not, is what changes our mailing address from the dark side to the light. It changes our default. It changes our character. This one thing encompasses all the others. This one thing changes everything. It's that simple and that difficult at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this this day of remembrance of who we are in your care. More and more as we celebrate it, help us not to get pulled off in just the ritual, but to remember why the ritual exists, to remember the meaning of the symbolism of days like this, so that we can find our deeper sense of gratitude and remember and recall and insert the presence of your hand into our gratitude, that you are at the center of our tables, the center of our families and our relationships, always deeper. And when things are difficult and when we're having bad days, to help us to remember to simply practice the intimacy and the connection and the choice to action that will pull us through back into gratitude again, into the sense of your presence, into kingdom, and remind us that we are on a good track towards you. So, Father, once again, thank you for doing everything first that we are being asked to do. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.